The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the uh, privilege and opportunity it is to gather and worship you this morning as your church. Father, I pray that uh, in this brief time that we have together that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, that you would um, open our ears, that we might hear the word of your gospel. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is this mic on? Can you guys hear me? Okay, good. Uh, Well, good morning. It is always good to be with you all. Uh, Last time I was here, um, I think I had a briar patch in the background on the stage and was down on the floor, and now I feel uh, quite high up, so I apologize for the, for the next strain that John mentioned here. I feel kind of like a Puritan preacher. Um, so thank you guys for being such a great source of community to Hunter Quinn, who works with me on campus. I know he has really, really enjoyed worshiping with y'all, and we're also so grateful for the way that so many of you guys have jumped in to uh, our events to love on international students. Um, I'm Chris Morrison. I'm the RUF International Campus Minister at SMU. And so, again, thank you for your support and for your involvement in our ministry. And, and Sarah and I really always love worshiping with you guys. You're actually the closest PCA church to our home. It took me less than three minutes to get here this morning. So I am, uh, enjoyed a very, very brief commute. All right, well, this morning I'm going to be spending a fair amount of time talking about um, shame you're going to hear that word quite a bit. So I just want to say this up front, even at the risk of spoiler alert or softening uh, any punchline of the sermon, that if this morning you find yourself feeling banished or cast out, remember that Jesus invites you into fellowship with him. And if you find yourself exposed or uncovered in any way, remember that God covers over you. And if this morning you find yourself feeling a deep sense of shame. Take heart that God delights to restore honor to you. So God has just pronounced his judgment on Adam and Eve. We begin to pick up with a sense of hope in this passage. Adam has tragically failed in his responsibility to guard and keep the garden and to obey the Lord's command to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we meet Adam here in this passage as he is coming out of an incredibly guilty and shameful situation. In concert with Eve, he has just broken the perfect relationship that he enjoyed with God. He's brought forth hard toil and labor and pain for his wife and every woman after her in childbirth. He's ushered in death for all mankind, and he is about to be evicted from the sweetest piece of real estate imaginable. I don't know about you, but I would be feeling pretty low. Perhaps I would 
be feeling sorry for myself and trying to hide myself away again. And I'm not sure what your default is, but I can sometimes be a little slow to see hope in the midst of my guilt, shame, and despair. Yet that's not what we encounter here with Adam. That's not what his response was. His was a response of hope. Adam believed what God had just promised them. In verse 20, by naming his wife Eve, Adam shows that he trusts that what God had just promised us in Genesis 3.15 will come true, that the seed of the woman will indeed crush the head of the serpent. In the Hebrew, Eve's name means life giver, and her name is very closely related to the word for living. He did not miss God's promise amidst the judgment. He understood that all mankind would descend from him. God was not going to wipe out Adam and start over by creating a new man. And even as man became more and more wicked up to the time of Noah, God remained faithful to his promise by preserving Noah and his family. God would not start over, but planned to redeem the world through the seed of the woman. And Adam clung to that promise in naming his wife Eve. In his commentary on Genesis, Bruce Waltke writes, Adam's naming of Eve is the beginning of hope. Adam shows his restoration to God by believing the promise that the faithful woman will bear offspring that will defeat Satan. While the story is filled with death, judgment on the serpent, painful labor, conflict of wills, a ray of hope remains in the promise that the seed of the woman who feels enmity toward the serpent will defeat the incarnation of evil. Also, when Adam names his wife life giver because she is the mother of all living, he shows that he's about to get back to to the business of what is commonly referred to as the cultural mandate, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Adam is about to get back on task here. As he moves out of the garden, he is going to begin the process of working the ground and spreading through the earth. A man has resisted this mandate at various times in history, the most famous, of course, being the Tower of Babel. Remember what the people said in Genesis 11:4? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to depend on themselves and their own ability rather than to depend on the Lord to provide for them. Though God's plan always involves cities, they wanted to build a city in order to make their name great rather than making great the name of the Lord. They wanted to devise their own way so that they would not have to be dispersed throughout the earth. Yet just as God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, furthering along the cultural mandate, God confused the language of those building Babel and he dispersed them throughout the earth. So the Adam that we meet here in verse 20 is not, conf- is not focused on death, but he's focused on life. He's focused on hope. The consequence of man's rebellion results in a dramatic shift in the narrative for humanity, but the story does not end in Genesis 3. Adam is about to enter into a harsh new environment, but he will carry with him a sense of 
hope. So now that we've seen Adam's sense of hope, his belief in God's promise in naming Eve, I want to turn our attention to the next sentiment of hope that we see, the next ray of hope that we see in this passage, which is in God's provision of clothing for Adam and Eve. So don't worry, you're not going to get fashion advice from the pulpit today. I've been accused of a lot of things in my life, but being fashion forward is certainly not one of them. Yesterday, much to uh, Sarah's chagrin, I was actually uh, wearing a shirt that I wore back in high school. I've still got it. Uh, So some guys in our denomination, they really don't like to wear the very flattering Geneva robes when they preach. I actually look forward to preaching in churches that embrace the Geneva robe, not because I'm nostalgic for centuries past, but because I just don't have to decide what to wear. All I have to do is pick out my tie, and I am set for the day. So when Adam and Eve, when they attempt to cover themselves, they are trying to deal with their shame. And I think the, the depth of that often gets lost on us, primarily because of how we relate to and view the world. Western cultures tend to operate out of a guilt and innocence paradigm. We tend to look at things as right and wrong. And it's important that we understand that because we need God to forgive us of our transgressions and to declare us innocent. Most Middle Eastern and Asian cultures, however, relate to the world based on honor and shame. And in an honor-shame culture, it's not so much about whether what you did was right or wrong, but about how others perceive what you did. Roland Muller was a missionary in the Middle East for many, many years, and in his book, Honor and Shame, he illustrates how cultures based on the guilt-innocence paradigm that we embrace in the West and those based on honor-shame differ in the way that they relate to lying. So he writes, in our culture, telling the truth is right and telling lies is wrong. In the Middle East, people don't think of lies as being right or wrong. The question is, is what is being said honorable? If a lie protects the honor of a tribe or a nation, then it is fine. If a lie is told for purely selfish reasons, then it is shameful. So the goal is not to be right, but to maintain honor. And after Adam and Eve sinned, they were attempting to deal with their own shame, on their own. They made a bit of a ridiculous attempt to hide their shame. They did so by sewing fig leaves together into loincloths, but the fig leaves were only a partial covering. My neighbor across the street actually has a pretty sizable fig tree in his front yard, and there's no leaves on it right now, but in the past I have walked over there to examine the leaves, to to look at the fruit growing on the tree. And the leaves on the tree are big, but they're not that big. And even though Adam and Eve sewed them together into loincloths, they were still not an adequate full covering for their shame. Also, the cloths they made from the fig leaves would likely not be all that durable. Fig leaves are stronger than a lot of leaves, but it was a hasty attempt to cover over their shame that would unlikely last for very long. And the loincloths made from fig leaves were not suitable for the environment that Adam and Eve were about to enter. It'd be a bit like embarking on a trip for Siberia in the middle of winter and taking a light fleece as your only layer of warmth. It's not sufficient. It won't do. Adam is about 
to toil. He's about to work the ground. It's going to be hard labor. And just a little bit of his labor and the loincloth is likely to go the way of Steve Martin's old tux and father of the bride. It's not going to hold up. So those loincloths are not going to work out for Adam and Eve in their new environment. And as opposed to God leaving them fully in their shame to figure it out on their own, God graciously clothes Adam and Eve. What they were unable to do for themselves, God graciously did for them. Adam discovers the love of God for him and the Lord's provision of clothing. God confirms to him that he still loves him enough to cover over his shame. Whereas Adam and Eve's covering with fig leaves was only partial, again, the equivalent of a loincloth, God provided a much fuller covering over their shame. God provided them with the equivalent of tunics, garments that would have likely come down either to their ankles or perhaps just as as high as their knees. This was a much more fitting, much fuller covering over their shame. The animal skins would be much more durable than the loincloths that Adam and Eve had fashioned for themselves. They would hold up and wouldn't need to be replaced for a long time. And also the, the tunics provided by God were much more suited for the environment that Adam and Eve were heading into. With their bodies being more fully covered, they could be better protected from a harsher environment outside the garden. Blazing sun, rain, cold, dusty wind. Plus, if they're about to move through the thorns and the thistles that the Lord had promised Adam would have to fight against, the animal skins would provide much better protection. They would stand up to the thorns and thistles much better than the loincloths. So God shows his love toward Adam and Eve and his gracious provision of the tunics made from animal skins. And while the garments were a covering over their shame, they also served as a reminder that their shame had not fully been dealt with. The seed of the woman had not yet crushed the head of the serpent. When they looked at their clothes, it would certainly remind them that they were not in the position of honor in relation to God that they previously enjoyed. Matthew Henry in his commentary reminds us, clothes came in with sin. Little reason have we to be proud of our clothes, which are but the badges of our shame. Those garments are only temporary, though. And when I say that they're temporary, I don't mean that we should migrate back toward the fashion of Eden. The lusts of the flesh are still alive and well. A while back, Al LaCour, the RUF International Coordinator, my boss. He and I were spending some time together on campus over at SMU, and we were visiting with some male students who had recently arrived from a very conservative country in the Middle East. And in their culture, there are very strict regulations and norms for how males are to interact with females, and the women are often covered from head to toe. And so we began to ask them, what is it that they were enjoying about Dallas. They responded that they loved the weather. It was August, yet it was still much cooler than their country. And even, uh, and they also said that they really enjoyed McKinney and lakes. The lakes they see everywhere. And I began to scratch my head. McKinney is a bit of a haul from campus, and White Rock is nice, but Dallas is not necessarily known for its lakes. 
And after a few minutes of listening to them talk, I realized that the McKinney that they were referring to was not the town a few miles north of Dallas, but was McKinney Avenue. They liked to go and go into the bars and, and people watch and, and walk around the area. And they weren't talking about lakes. They were talking about legs. They were talking about the way many young women dress on campus and around town. They had never witnessed that before. And needless to say, when I realized that, I was a little blush. It made me a little embarrassed that I had agreed with them, thinking they were talking about lakes. (laughs) And it made me sad that that was their first impression of our city. So the garments are only a temporary covering over our shame. Yet we don't need for our shame just to be covered over. That won't do. We need it to be removed. And Ezekiel gets at this a little bit in chapter 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Yet here also, Adam and Eve learn that death is necessary to cover over their shame. Though they did not die immediately, something else had to die in order for their shame to be dealt with, something that didn't necessarily deserve to die. And this is the first time that we encounter physical death in the Bible. If in Genesis 3.15 we see that victory over evil is going to come about through the seed of the woman, here in Genesis 3.21 we begin to get the idea that death is going to be involved in the final undoing of our shame, that salvation would come about through the death, through death of one who did not deserve it. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Colossians 1.21-22, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And again, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you see the removal of shame that comes about through the death of Christ here in these verses? Yet it's also not enough to say that God merely removes our shame. We don't just start over with a clean slate and then are left again on our own. We get more than that. As scripture unfolds, we see that the final and proper covering over our shame or the final dealing with our shame is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Recently, a student and I were talking about justification and how Jesus takes away our shame and too often, Christians, especially those of us in the West, we just we leave it there. Where our cultural paradigm is based around guilt and innocence, we just leave it there that Christ undoes our guilt. He takes it away and we're clean. And God has declared us to be 
innocent of our sin. However, if we just leave it hanging there, we are missing a huge and beautiful piece of the salvation that we enjoy in Jesus. It is not just that our guilt is removed, but we are also restored to honor. And that's because we now have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ giving himself up for us, our shame is not only removed, but we get his righteousness. In him, we get something that we could never do on our own. And that no animal, no matter how beautiful or spotless, could ever offer to us. This is good news. So think with me for a minute of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. As we follow the story and as we keep in mind an honor-shame worldview, we see someone that has moved from such a high position of honor to a place of deep, deep shame. And he would not have only brought shame upon himself, he would have brought shame upon his father and upon the entire family. So the logical thing for the father to do upon the return of the son would be to reject him or worse. Yet we're familiar enough with that story to know that that's not what the father does. In fact, he does the very opposite. He gets rid of the rags that his son would have been wearing and robes him in the most splendid robe that they had. In Jesus, we are restored to honor. Jesus takes our shame and gives us his righteousness. And we see that so very clearly in his death and resurrection. The cross is such a visible picture of Christ taking our shame upon himself. It's hard to imagine anything more shameful, especially by someone so undeserving than being publicly reviled, stripped down, beaten, and hung on a cruel cross to die. Think of it this way. Adam and Eve attempted to cover over their shame by making loincloths out of fig leaves. And at the cross, Jesus took off his robe. Jesus, the one who had no shame, put himself in a miserable position of shame for us. At the cross, Jesus was stripped down to a loincloth, to a fig leaf, for all the world to see him, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve, taking upon himself all of our shame. In his death and resurrection, he takes our shame upon himself, and we get his righteousness. We have new garments. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed, clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. In Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And that word there, to put on in the Greek, can refer to putting on clothing. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In Christ, you are being dressed in his very righteousness. And I believe Colin preached from Revelation 19 last week. Listen to this again. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. But the world encourages us, encourages us to deal with our shame on our own. So often, like Adam and Eve attempted to hide from God and cover their shame with fig leaves, we too try to deal with our shame on our own. So let me ask, what are ways that you try to deal with your shame on your own? It does not typically work out very well when we cover over our shame ourselves. Over time, our bodies begin to decay, and we sometimes go to extremes to hide that or to cover over that. I am fortunate right now to have a pretty robust, though graying, head of hair. However, if I ever begin to go the way of my maternal grandfather, then I'm going to face a tough choice down the road. Do I embrace my receding hairline? Or do I try to cover over it, hang on for a little while with the comb over? A few can pull it off, but for most men, it just doesn't work out very well. You've all seen the, the failed comb over attempts. And that's a silly example, but what about with fashion? Are you enslaved to fashion or appearance? There is an obsession with fashion and image in the city of Dallas. And I witnessed that on campus at, at SMU, and you see and feel it around many parts of our city. Or what about your good works? Do you ever try to cover over your shame by what you do? Are you trying to clothe yourself in your good deeds and your own efforts rather than being clothed in the righteousness of Christ and resting in his saving work on your behalf? So Sarah and I typically have the delight and privilege of having students from SMU join us at, at church each week. And several weeks ago, all of those who were planning to come suddenly were unable to come at the last moment. And when we walked into the church, I realized that I kind of felt naked. I, I felt like I was missing something. And again, I love to have students come and worship alongside our family, but for some reason that day... I began to question, would people notice that no one was with us? Would they question, what are the Morrisons doing on campus? And thankfully, my precious wife was quick to remind me that righteousness does not lie in how impressive ministry looks, how good my efforts are. It is in Christ and in Christ alone. A few years ago when we were living in China, Sarah and I had the privilege of going and we were invited to go and do some research on an unreached people group. And very little was known about this people group. So little, in fact, that no one really knew exactly where they lived. We were kind of aiming for an area of a couple hundred square miles. We just knew we were going to point that direction. We took an overnight train. And then when we arrived in the general area, began to ask where we might find them. So finally, after a, a day of looking, we, we found the village that was kind of their primary village. And we spent some time there. We began to ask them about you know, what their worldview is, what their cultural norms were, just get to know who they were as people. And then after we'd been there for a while, we began to ask around, are there any Christians? Are there any Christians among your people? Do you know of, of any? And finally someone was able to point us to a family that were Christians. Yet they didn't live in the village. They lived outside the village. About a half mile down the road, they were the trash collectors. And so trash was all around their house. And when we approached, it was a situation that by worldly standards 
looked very shameful. But these people would have no honor in a remote place in China, in a small village, an unknown people group, living outside the village collecting trash. But when we sat down with them, it was quite the opposite. Though they were in great position of honor by the world's, or, or dishonor by the world's standards, we saw people who knew that their honor lay in Jesus. I never saw such joy from people who know that they are robed in the righteousness of Christ. Yet we're not being clothed in the righteousness of Christ simply for a change of fashion. We are clothed in his righteousness that we may meet the bridegroom. We are being clothed to be in the very presence of God. Just like God gave Adam and Eve proper clothing for the new environment that they were heading into when he drove them out of the garden, he properly clothes us for where we are headed in Christ. So where is it that we are headed? In this passage in Genesis 3, we see that man is banished from the garden, but that banishment is only temporary. Man is sent out to continue the cultural mandate. Man is sent out on a sojourn. And I love the stage right here. You see all the, the luggage, so, so we're, we're on a sojourn. We're packed. We're ready to go. But the destination for man is ultimately meant to be headed back toward the garden. One of the great things about living in a global city like Dallas is that you don't actually have to leave Dallas to engage in missions. There are several different ways to work with internationals that are living right here in our city. And as the church, when we work with those coming here from other countries, we're operating under a couple of different biblical principles. Throughout Scripture, God has commanded his people to be hospitable to the foreigner, and he calls us to treat them as we would a native or rather a, a local person. I've really enjoyed getting to know um, your very own Cameron Mullins. Over the past few months, we've been getting together at White Rock Coffee periodically to share ministry ideas and to encourage one another. And I'm so grateful to see how the Lord is blessing the ministry of For the Nations as they welcome refugees to Dallas. They're able to meet real and tangible needs as people who have been uprooted from their home seek to make a new home here. And though I work with internationals too, one thing that is a little different about my ministry is that they are sojourners in the truest sense of the word. They are only temporarily making a home here. Most of them, when they finish their degree or after they work here for a couple of years, they're headed back to their country of origin. They're not staying. They're just passing through. And earlier, once again, we said that this passage brings to an end man's life in the Garden of Eden, that life outside the garden would not be so blissful. Man is expelled from the garden. He's not going to get back in by his own efforts and abilities. And we said that we see our need for God to cover over our shame and that ultimately he restores us to honor by clothing us in the righteousness of Christ. However, once again, this passage not only points us to the cross, to, our, to the salvation that's offered in Jesus, from the garments that put a temporary covering over our shame to being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which completely removes and undoes our shame. This passage points us to more. It points us back to a garden. From this point on, man is on a sojourn to get back to a garden. 
However, this time it's going to be a more complete, a more perfect garden. So listen again to part of what we read earlier from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And here's what Tim Keller says about this. Beginning with the Old Testament prophets, God's future redeemed world is depicted as a city. And in Revelation 21 through 22, when God's creational and redemptive intentions are fully realized, we see that the result is indeed a city with walls and gates and streets. In some ways, this city is unlike our current cities, more of a garden city that perfectly balances the glorious benefits of human destiny and diversity with the beauty and peace of nature. The city of God's old enemy, Babylon, is finally overthrown, and God's people thrive in peace and productivity. And then he goes on to say, What is most striking about this holy city is that it has not been built from scratch, and its mist flows from a crystal river, and on each side of the river is the tree of life that bears fruit and leaves to heal the nations of all the effects of the divine covenant curse. This city is, in fact, the same garden we see in the Genesis account, which is also marked by a central river in the presence of the tree of life. But it has been expanded and remade into the garden city of God. It is the garden of Eden, yet faithfully cultivated, the fulfillment of the purposes of the Eden of God. Indeed, the very word used for garden in Genesis 2 denotes not a wilderness, but a park, a well-tended plot of land, one would find in a city or near a royal palace. Man will not get back to the garden based on his own efforts. The cherubim that we meet in verse 24 makes quite certain of that. He's coming by invitation. He's coming by grace. Yet in order to come, he must be properly clothed, properly outfitted. The leaves certainly won't cut it. Good works will never add up. And even the animal skins are not part of the dress code. The only thing that is necessary, the only thing that is sufficient, is being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Yes, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, man is headed back toward a garden. He is heading back to dwell in the presence of God. For man was always meant to dwell in the presence of God. So as we continue this sojourn back toward the garden... God has given his people reminders along the way. Reminders that he deals with our shame so that we can be back in his presence. In the Old Testament, we find the sacrificial system that prepared God's people to enter the temple where the presence of God dwelt. And for us, as we await Christ's return, we partake of the Lord's Supper where Christ is present with us in a unique and special way. And remember, as you come to this table in a few moments, you come at his invitation. And when you come, you come not with your works, your worth, your deeds, not robed in what you've done. For in fact, you didn't dress yourself at all for this meal. He picked out your garments. He has clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that um, you care enough about us not to leave us in our shame, not just to 
remove our shame, but to restore us to honor, to restore us to honor in the work and the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I ask that as we go about this week, as we enter into a new week, that we would live as those not who are in a deep place of shame, but those who have been restored to honor in the righteousness of Christ. Father, would you help us to dwell on that? Would you transform our hearts to truly believe that, that we would no longer try to cover over our shame ourselves, but that we would rest in his honor, that we would rest in the righteousness that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.